Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a uh, good week. Hard to believe that it's uh, Friday. I don't know where the time goes, but it goes by quick. And I I know that I have uh, said that before from other um, podcast segment episodes, uh, regardless of topic. But it is something that uh, we can't control the older we get. But the most important thing is how we choose to make the most of our time on a weekly basis which to me is probably the most important thing when it's all uh, said and done with. I will have to say that we are actually getting to the very, very end of this uh, podcast uh, book topic uh, series discussion. As we um, emerged from the uh, previous two episodes being uh, a two-part series on the actual physical battle of Lake Erie, we will now be into the... um, final two episodes of the uh, podcast uh, series, and it will uh, focus on um, what's called denouement. Now, it's not just a term uh, by itself, but I will uh, make sure to mention what denouement itself means before before this uh, episode ends, but I will not uh, start off in this um, episode with the first leadoff question uh, asking you all what is denouement, but I do promise uh, definitely in enough time that I will uh, mention it so that we get a better read as to where we're going. I can tell you this much in this uh, podcast segment episode that uh, we will be learning about um, such things as, um, for example, we will need to figure out Uh, what was, in fact, the most devastating element endured by the British Navy in the midst of their defeat. We would also um, need to find out uh, which individual on the American side just so happened to be the busiest on the evening of September 10th, 1813. And I'm sure some of you are probably wondering right away, why does that matter? Well, there's a reason why I'm addressing it, and it it will be something that uh, certainly does matter. We also need to know um, as to uh, when uh, Lieutenant Robert Barclay, the uh, British commander, uh, went about um, addressing the ultimate battle outcome to his superior um, commanding officer above him. And then we also will need to learn a little bit more about uh, those serving under Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott aboard the uh, flagship Niagara. In other words, we will have to find out or I should say learn, as to whether or not um, Perry's uh, subordinates uh, spoke out against uh, Lieutenant Elliott's inactivity. Other um, matters that we will need to uh, discuss um, will pertain to uh, what truly was the primary purpose behind defeating the British fleet at Lake Erie, and we, along with um, needing to figure out what other elements or factors could have played out following the Royal Navy's defeat on Lake Erie. Uh, So it's more than just, uh, say, one factor, for example. But uh, the bottom line is that um, getting towards the end here, we do need to um, understand uh, how we're going to wrap this up. It's one thing to start a a series, but we obviously need to know how it's going to end. I mean, you know, as the old saying goes, sometimes in life, uh, all good things in life do have to come to an end or all stories in this case have to have some uh, formal ending. However, I will admit that it is easy to assume, 
like I've said many of times from the past when learning of a historic event, that when the textbooks um, told us whatever they wanted us to know, they didn't always um, give us the full nine yards of what really happened. Of course, maybe at the time when the stories were first taught to generations before, maybe the information that we know today just simply wasn't available back then. I mean, it's it could be a, for a host of various reasons, but the most important thing is, is that um, getting to the bottom of the uh, story in terms of how of how things played out in the end says a lot about how we as a country not only evolve over time, but in this case how America had to fight for her second war for independence truly does say a lot about it truly does say a lot about the sacrifices that the young republic was having to make given that you know before declaring war and by the time war itself was declared we didn't really have what was called a professional army we had done a complete 360 but then again political factions have taken over to where one party does not believe in the in the necessity of having a strong um, army and at the same time, it's not so much that the um, political notion or ideal of not having a strong army, it's one thing to not want that, but we must be reminded that even in times of peace, a strong army should be present, because you never know when something unexpected can happen to where your borders need protection, um, all kinds of things. So I think it's fair to say that in the early 19th century, America, given that she was 36 years old, she had turned 36 years old right after um, Congress had declared war on Britain come June 18th of 1812. It was one thing to declare war, but as this war goes along, with all the trials and tribulations that we will face, we will come to the realization in the end that um, that uh, militias can no longer be relied upon to um, put out the flames, no matter how big or small the conflicts are, even if it means going against one of the most formidable um, militaries uh, throughout the world, and being that of England. So I think it's fair to say that we better get this show on the road because we have a lot of ground to cover. So let's, uh, let's get the ball rolling. And here we go with our first leadoff question. Was the overall sounds of gunfire heard from various towns and cities far away from where, from where the actual hostilities took place along uh, Putin Bay um, in uh, Middle in uh, South Bass Island in Ohio? Do you all think the overall sounds of gunfire from various towns and cities far away from where the actual hostilities took place were in fact able to be heard? Believe it or not, the answer is yes. Gunfire, folks, was heard from uh, such uh, from from cities along Lake Erie, uh, most notably being uh, Cleveland and Detroit. Cleveland being on the eastern edge of Lake Erie, and of course you go uh, north into northwest Ohio. You have Toledo, and then of course you have Detroit, which is which borders right on uh, Lake Erie into um, the Detroit River. So yes, believe it or not, if you're living in Detroit or in Cleveland, or in what we know as present-day Toledo, you can hear the sound of um, gunfire 
you really can, folks. It, it, I mean, it's amazing to think that, you know, you could be 50 miles away, but you could still be hearing faint sounds of gunfire. To me, that's pretty amazing. And if you're on the Canadian side, uh, living in such living in cities, most notably Amherstburg, uh, located along the Detroit River, and Detroit being on the opposite side of the Detroit River, and I know this because when my wife and I were in um, Northwest Ohio, as well as Southwest Ontario, uh, back over from this uh, summer, when we were in Canada, on uh, one side being Amherstburg and Windsor the opposite side of the river, you could see Detroit. So it it was uh, pretty amazing to see um, one side of the city that you were on, that you were on and then see the other uh, city on the uh, opposing nation side uh, right across from you. So yes, if you live in Amherstburg, Ontario, then you are definitely bound to hear the sounds of uh, gunfire taking place. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel A.F. Warburton of the 41st Regiment of Foot, including many Amherst residents, Amherstburg residents, I should say, they were able to see the fighting or action, I should say, take place through the use of spy glasses. You know, oftentimes when we think, when we see like a captain or some other uh, commanding officer aboard a boat uh, look out through his or her lens along along or I should say above the horizon we often think they're looking through a telescope not necessarily they could be looking at a spyglass to see just how close the enemy is within proximity of where their uh, ship or vessels are positioned so believe it or not folks uh, many of Amherstburg's residents were able to see the fighting or action take place through the use of spyglasses However, though, given that the Battle of Lake Erie was three hours long, or three hour span, I should say, over time, it did become difficult to see everything. And a lot of that was because of the haze of smoke. You know, think about it, folks. The ships are firing uh, cannons at one another. They are cannonballs at one another. They are firing just about anything to uh, get the upper hand. So with all that firing, it is bound to uh, create uh, not just havoc amongst the ships, but havoc to where those watching from a distance are not going to be able to know whom has taken out, um, which side has got the upper hand over the other. They may not even be able to know until, say, the next day, possibly. Well, some observers along the Canadian shore were at first convinced that the British fleet were the ones chasing down the Americans. This led many uh, Canadians to believe that the British had won. But shortly afterwards, did the opposite become an actual reality when the stars and stripes were spotted flying over the Union Jack on the masts of what previously had been the King's Flotilla, a.k.a. Fleet. So whatever moments of happiness there were or um, thoughts spinning through uh, those Canadians' minds or those Canadian people's minds, I should say, whatever um, moments of excitement or uh, joy are now becoming a sad reality, a scary reality knowing now that the British 
have been defeated. Not just one or two ships, folks, but an entire flotilla fleet. And as we learned from the previous uh, podcast segment, this was something very, very unheard of. It was something that was a rarity in uh, British Royal Navy history. Never before had it really had an entire fleet surrendered to the opposing force. And, the, and it happened, folks. This could be a good case of where David slewed Goliath. You know, the, the British are supposed to have the mightiest navy in the world. They were supposed to have had the mightiest army in the world. And even back in 1781, when uh, General Lord Charles Cornwallis surrendered his force at Yorktown, the war did not officially end then, come October 19th of 1781, but it was an example of where David did slew Goliath. And what do you know, 30 years later, when we're fighting the second war for uh, independence, but this time being from an economical standpoint, um, the fact that an entire fleet has had to surrender on one of the Great Lakes, to me, uh, Goliath has endured uh, a gigantic setback. Goliath is no longer invincible. Goliath has been reduced to where he's not uh, the mightiest thing in the world. So is it fair to say that miracles can happen? Yes, they can. So yes, uh, whatever excitement and joy there was, it uh, sadly became a, a terrible reality when the stars and the stripes were spotted flying over the Union Jack on the masts of what previously had been the King's Flotilla, a.k.a. Fleet, Joy now turned into fear, given many soldiers and sailors on board British vessels were locals from Amherstburg, as extended families became concerned for the safety of their loved ones. We have to remember, folks, that all these um, men whom were uh, fighting on board the British fleet, on, the, on board the British vessels, I should say, not, I mean, yes, some of them could have originally come from England, but at the same time, if they were serving in in another uh, regiment, most notably the 41st, they have spent considerable amount of time in Canada, and they've more than likely brought their families with them. Uh, that's not to say there probably could have been some bachelors, but the majority of these men in the 41st Regiment of Foot, for example, were married. So I can't imagine um, you know, what your wife might be going through at the moment as to, you know, is my husband going to come home alive or will he become a prisoner of war? When will I find out if he's even alive? It's not like I can just get a phone call right away to say, oh, um, here's the status of your loved one. So there is a lot of uncertainty now. Uh, the news from Putin Bay on South Bass Island was about the same. Given the current state of weather conditions, via haze and smoke, made it hard to determine right away whom won. Uh, for those whom stayed put along South Bass Island, the news about whom emerged victorious would not be known until next day. That next day, folks, being September 11th of 1813. You know what I uh, found interesting here, folks, is that it's. I was thinking about this in, in my mind, and how to address it here, but on September 11th, 1813, 188 years earlier, 
before um, the horrific events of September 11th, 2001 took place. Um, here, America is fighting the second war for independence, but from an economical standpoint, you know, Americans want to feel safe on the high waters. There's, our sailors don't want to be impressed. They don't want to be taken against their own will and fight for an enemy just because the enemy claims to be to be having a shortage of sailors. Well, really what the enemy is doing is by impressing America's sailors, they are enhancing their strength to fight other um, wars around the world as a means of um, making up for um, lost numbers due to, say, death, desertion, or just an inability to even want to serve, um, to serve the king in terms of... Uh, performing your uh, righteous uh, duties as a um, British citizen. So, and not to get off track here, but uh, something else that I um, even came to the conclusion was that on September 11th of 2001, yes, there was all kinds of sadness. There truly was a loss of innocence for several reasons. But then I thought to myself, there was some good that came out of September 11th. And I know many of you would be saying right now, Kirk, what what good could have come out of September 11th? Well, think about the 40 passengers aboard and the crew aboard United Flight 93, whom took matters into their own hands by fighting back against the hijackers. They had already learned that two planes crashed into the World Trade Towers, another plane crashed into the Pentagon, and given... Given where they were in the air, they weren't far from D.C. They probably knew that that their plane that they were on was going to be turned into a weapon that would be going either towards the White House or the Capitol. So those uh, men and women performed uh, an incredibly noble act, and we owe them a debt of gratitude even after 22 years by fighting against the by fighting back the hijackers taking over the plane and yes it crashed into somerset pennsylvania um but the bottom line is is that yes it may have been yes it was tragic that those men and women lost their lives aboard flight 93 but the good that came out of it was that they saved so many other people's lives uh, so so I'm sure many of you are probably thinking, what what does this have to do with uh, what we're talking about right here? I just find it very interesting that um, that if you're on the side of the Americans, that um, the day after the battle, you've learned about um, the outcome of the battle and that your country has emerged victorious on Lake Erie, while the war itself may not be over, but you do have something good to feel about. You do have something better to feel about and that you have uh, that morale is better now that people might be feeling a little bit better about being an American. That's just the way I see it. Uh, what happened to a majority of British soldiers and sailors whom were killed uh, during the, the battle? Well, folks, uh, I can tell you this much. We don't have time uh, back then to do uh, individual funerals for everyone. So for all we know, um, a majority of these uh, men whom died could have been from Amherstburg, but sadly their um, extended families did not know, obviously, if they had died or not. But 
the bottom line is is that the uh, for these British soldiers and sailors whom were killed during the battle, their bodies were thrown overboard as a means to keep the ships and guns free from any obstacles. Some British and American deceased got sewn into their hammocks with cannonball placed at their feet. Or I should say with cannonballs placed at their feet. So maybe some soldiers on both sides got an honorary burial, but not everyone did. That's sadly um, a reality when it comes to um, fighting a war, is that not everyone gets to have a proper burial. In some instances, history has told us that where people have been buried, stacked upon one another in terms of a mass grave. Uh, whom on the American side was the busiest uh, individual-wise come the evening of September 10th, 1813? And I know I mentioned earlier, and some of you are probably saying, why would this matter? Well, I figured that it did, so that's why I wanted to share this with you guys. Uh, whom on the American side was the busiest individual-wise come evening of September 10th, 1813? His name was Dr. Usher Parsons, the junior surgeon of uh, flagship USS Lawrence. He, he saw his fair share of dead and wounded crew. The USS Lawrence, which took on a huge beating from um, HMS Detroit and uh, HMS Queen Charlotte, USS Lawrence saw 22 crewmen be reported as dead. 22 may not seem like a big number, but depending on the overall size of the crew and that being a larger size ship, to lose 22 men um, via the violence that, um, that uh, came about, that is a substantial number. But how about over having over 60 crewmen being wounded? The majority of the wounded were badly uh, mutilated with limbs getting shattered or crushed. I, I know that doesn't sound pleasant, folks, but I think we need to be reminded that, uh, that this is not uh, cowboys and Indians. This is not cops and robbers. This is real-life stuff, folks. Uh, we may not have had televisions back then uh, where news reporters could have been at the front scene, but if you read about it in a newspaper or heard about it by word of someone else, then you would know just how bad it was for anyone to see that kind of carnage up close. So I can't imagine seeing um, men or uh, comrades of mine being badly mutilated with limbs being shattered or crushed. It's amazing what a projectile can do uh, from within a cannonball. And it is something that we should be reminded of because not everybody has the means uh, to duck or to run to get out of harm's way at lightning speed. We can't control what comes at us. We can do everything we can to be vigilant, but we can't control uh, the magnitude in which these cannonballs come at us and what, um, and what comes afterwards once the cannonballs themselves explode or the uh, canisters or grape shots being launched. I mean, it's, it's more than just one cannonball at a time, folks. I mean, with the canister, you have m multiple iron at least multiple three-pound iron balls, probably at best or less, all placed into cloth into um, into a can, and it's being launched out from the cannon, and all of these uh, small round balls go at different directions, inflicting damage. So it, 
you know, we have to, you have to not only be worried about what's in the center, but you got to be concerned about what's coming from the left or at the right that can lead to having limbs being shattered or crushed. Dr. Parsons was forced to postpone a large number of amputations. Can't imagine needing uh, my leg amputated, but now it's being postponed, so where are my chances of survival long-term? Well, for Dr. Parsons now, he's uh, got to focus instead on measures from dressing wounds to using tourniquets for controlling uh, bleeding, for, or I should say for uh, the prevention of further bleeding. The, du the duration to the evening of September 10th saw Dr. Parsons administer drugs to keeping all wounded men as comfortable as possible. I can't imagine being on board this vessel or even alive back then. I mean, you had to obviously learn how to tough this stuff out as best as you could, but just um, the level of pain you can only fathom the thought of, um, of, of the horrors uh, that ensued, even though your side emerged victorious, but knowing that not everybody is, has survived and knowing that so many men have been badly wounded and knowing that so many have been wounded uh, with due to badly due to badly being uh, mutilated due to their limbs being shattered or crushed i mean and they're still alive i mean even if you're not injured you still see those scars in front of you you could still have nightmares i mean there's no such uh, treatment centers folks to treat those with ptsd i mean that won't come for a for a much uh, longer period of time but we can say that even back in, during this uh, time not only just in this time, but perhaps during the 18th century, that um, soldiers did deal with some kind of uh, modern-day form of uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Sunday, September 12th, bodies of three American and three British officers whom were killed in combat got lowered into boats and formally rowed to uh, shore where bands from both, from both fleets played a, a dirge. And a dirge is spelled... D-I-R-G-E. By playing a dirge, that is a mournful tribute song. Kind of like how um, when uh, servicemen um, are being buried, uh, taps. Uh, that, to me, is um, a dirge, uh, a, a mournful tribute song to, a, to the fallen soldier. Uh, what was the most devastating element endured by the British Navy in the midst of their defeat? Uh, for starters, uh, commanders and officers from five of the six British vessels either got killed or wounded. Secondly, these losses ranged from key personnel in being uh, two master's mates, one quartermaster, one boatswain, two boatswain's mates, two carpenter's mates, one quarter gunner, ten seamen whom were considered veterans. Yeah, to lose that kind of, um, to lose that um, number of people, it may not sound like the grandest number, folks, but to lose that, that speaks volumes, but not for the right reasons. Perry's victory on Lake Erie, folks, went about reducing Britain's naval presence along the upper lakes to just a small number of commercial vessels that got converted over into gunboats. The American crews, however, did not have a whole lot of time for resting, or I should say rejoicing. 
Given Perry's victory now enabled General William Henry Harrison's forces to invade north into Canada via the Western District of Upper Canada. So, yes, we can be, um, we can certainly be victorious in the sense of being elated that we have uh, defeated not just uh, the British on Lake Erie, but that we've defeated an entire crew, not an, enti an entire crew, but an entire fleet whom has surrendered to us. But yet there is so much work left to be um, done, uh, to be resolved. Uh, when did uh, Lieutenant Robert Barclay go about addressing the ultimate uh, battle outcome to his superior, being that of uh, Commodore Sir James Lucas Yeo? Uh, now, before I give you the answer to that, um, the question I had mentioned a moment ago about how uh, the Americans, even though this was a grand victory, but they couldn't um, sit back and think that everything's going to be okay, um, I'm going to address that part to you all here in a short while with regards to General Harrison's advance northward into um, into Upper Canada. But in the meantime, we have to focus on something else here with regards to uh, Lieutenant Robert Barclay's uh, situation. And it's not a good one. I mean, yes, he's lost, and he's and he had to surrender an entire fleet. And we also need to find out how he goes about addressing the ultimate battle outcome to his superior. But we do need to know when it happened. Well, it did happen two days after uh, the battle had taken place that uh, Lieutenant Robert Barclay himself did, in fact, go about addressing the ultimate battle outcome to his superior commanding officer. He wrote up a report of the events from September 10th to Commodore um, Sir James uh, Lucas Yeo, which included mentioning how Lieutenant George Inglis became head commander of HMS Detroit. The report per Barclay's findings behind the defeat included factors from loss of senior officers and veterans enlisted and veteran enlisted uh, men early on in the battle to lacking strong numbers of seamen whom had the ability, skills, and knowledge to take on the mission before them. So it, it probably is fair to say that for Lieutenant Robert Barclay, he got a raw deal. He pro I think it's fair to say that he could have probably been given um, more men whom had um, far more superb abilities, skills, and knowledge to take on the mission before them. But we do have to wonder... If there were other men out there with those uh, skills, were they stationed in other parts of the world where other battles or conflicts, I should say, were taking place? Most likely. We have to remember, with the British military being the mightiest in the world at this time, they're not all concentrated in one place. They, are, um, they have um, stations of men um, throughout other parts of the world, like in India, uh, perhaps in um, North Africa. They are probably in um, places in the Caribbean. We have them in uh, Canada, especially in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, they could be um, stationed in other parts of Europe, for all we know. Uh, they could even be as far away, folks, as, um, as uh, Australia, which would become... Um, its own uh, country, uh, independent country, um, I believe by 
just shy of uh, by the time uh, when the 19th century ended. But uh, that just goes to show you how um, how mighty full the um, British Empire is from a militaristic standpoint. Now, uh, Lieutenant Barclay, folks, did go as far as placing the majority of the blame for defeat at Lake Erie upon his superior, in uh, being uh, Sir Commodore Sir George Yeo, whom failed to supply Barclay with an adequate number of experienced seamen. I can't blame Robert Barclay for doing this, and we do have to wonder if he had far more uh, qualified men fighting under his watch that just maybe the outcome could have been a little different. We'll never know, but it's always possible. Now we're going to talk about uh, that term denouement that I mentioned earlier. Uh, what does denouement itself mean? Uh, denouement, uh, for those of you who aren't sure how it's spelled, it's D-E-N-O-U-E-M-E-N-T. Uh, denouement uh, pertains to the climax, a.k.a. ending point with regards to how an event itself played out from start to finish. Did Oliver Perry's subordinates speak out against Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott's inactivity? This has been quite a uh, contentious um, matter. You know, yes, we had learned from the previous podcast segment episode about how uh, Lieutenant Elliott was uh, focused on following a uh, strict line of um, pattern movement and how he did have an opportunity to uh, advance his ship um, into the center stage uh, given that um, HMS Queen Charlotte um, fell out of line and left a huge gap on her end to where to where uh, Niagara uh, could have uh, inflicted some uh, major damage. Now, as for those under um, Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott's uh, command, those officers did, in fact, uh, speak out against uh, their uh, commanding officers' inactivity. Uh, officers from First Lieutenant John Yarnall, Lieutenant, or I should say Marine Commander John Brooks, Midshipman Delaney Forrest, and Thomas Claxton were all highly critical behind Niagara's failure and coming closer to Queen Charlotte when the moment of opportunity was in fact available to strike a blow at the enemy. But we do need to keep this in mind, folks. You know, Oliver Perry was dealing with a lot in a short amount of time. I mean, his motto might have been victory or death because if he hadn't um, modified the situation when he had, we could be looking at a whole different game, folks. In other words, we could have we could be seeing Union Jack flags flying over nine American ships, given that we know now that six Stars and Stripes uh, flags flew over the entire British fleet. So Oliver Perry was caught up in the moment, given how much lied at stake. Uh, the focus for Oliver Perry was winning the battle in the midst of making sudden modifications that made the difference between victory versus defeat. Perry might have had concerns about Elliot's conduct, but the United States folks was in need of a victory. Given morale going into this battle was still currently low, 
and also knowing that the war itself had not started well. I would say that even come September of 1813, the United States is in a better position in terms of uh, given what we've been able to do in terms of prevailing along the Ohio frontier in northern Ohio via Fort Meigs and Fort Stevenson. But we need an even bigger um, victory, and we got that on Lake Erie. So given how much at stake um Given how much at stake um, was going on and all that Oliver Perry was having to deal with, it, he was more concerned about obviously making the necessary modifications that had to be made along with um, getting everything done because, you know, he doesn't have hours, he only has minutes. And minutes can, meet, can make all the difference between victory versus defeat. Was Oliver Perry very appreciative behind the crew of officers below Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott? Uh, yes, he made sure to commend those other officers for not leaving anything on the table. Uh, for example, uh, Perry recognized Lieutenant Yarnall for refusing to leave the deck in the midst of battle despite his having endured multiple wounds to commenting upon Purser, Hamble, Purser Hambleton. And I'm sure some of you are wondering, what is, what is a purser? P-U-R-S-E-R. -E a purser is a, an officer whose primary duties pertain to managing a ship's uh, papers and accounts. So for Purser Hambleton, his primary duties pertain to managing uh, the Niagara's uh, papers and accounts. But he went above and beyond to serve on the board's deck. It was a position not required by him to have performed, but yet he did it. Sometimes we have to go above and beyond to take on tasks that are not required of us to do, but at the same time, when it's a matter of not just so much life and death, but if it's a matter of uh, victory versus defeat, then we need to do what's necessary to ensure that, um, that we come out on the good side of things. Oliver Perry did have uh, mixed emotions about Jesse Elliott's conduct, but yet he never directly confronted him in the aftermath of victory. I think, for me, I think it's okay that he didn't, because had he confronted Jesse Elliott, then you have to wonder what would, how would Jesse Elliott have reacted to Oliver Perry? Would the two of them have gotten into a fight? Would the two of them have perhaps even gone as far as trying to duel one another? You, you know, we don't know, but at the same time, what we do know is that given what um, took place on September 10th, 1813, it was a matter of national security. And whatever feelings the lead commanding officer might have had for the other, even though Perry did have mixed emotions, I think Perry did the right thing by not um, saying everything on his mind. I believe he did everything there was to uh, still present a united front with everybody, um, with everybody um, on a united, how do I say it? Perry wanted to present a united front and rightfully he did. But whatever differences um, there may have been existing internally, those differences needed to be put aside. 
What was the primary purpose behind defeating the British fleet at Lake Erie? Perry's victory, folks, enabled a safe route for General William Henry Harrison's forces to go northward into uh, Detroit and eventually on into um, Amherstburg, Ontario. So by securing a safe route for General Harrison's forces, supply lines folks had easier means of getting to their final ends, such as transporting supplies or provisions from Erie and Cleveland to Detroit. But how about also sending a majority of Harrison's army in stages from entryway of Portage River to the Canadian shore south of Fort Malden, along with providing further means of logistical support. So it's not so much a victory, folks, on the water, but the victory alone will give uh, General Harrison's forces better means of accessibility to uh, receive uh, supplies and provisions, most notably uh, from the east being uh, Cleveland. Well, I'll put it this way, um, from the uh, east being uh, Erie, west Cleveland, all the way to Detroit via uh, the water with uh, Lake Erie and then making its way into uh, the Detroit River. Now, uh, there were about uh, joint forces. So, folks, you know, remember, even though um, the naval battle may have ended on September, it was a one-day battle on September 10th of 1813, joint forces between um, Oliver Perry's and William Henry Harrison's comprised of around 3,500 soldiers, including Perry's 16 vessels and 500 men, along with 80 to 90 boats, a.k.a. landing craft, designed for equipping troops and provisions. September 20th to the 22nd, um, Oliver Perry was... um, transferring Harrison's army to uh, Putin Bay. September 27th saw Perry's fleet arrive east of Detroit, east of the Detroit River's entryway with warships attached by rope roughly a quarter mile from the Canadian shore. Easy landing due to British forces having withdrawn. So the fact that British forces are withdrawing, folks, that tells me right there that they sense that um, that the worst is about to come and that they just simply do not have the manpower to be able to take on what lies ahead. Uh, what other elements or factors uh, played out following the Royal Navy's defeat on Lake Erie? For starters, the British Army no longer had the means for maintaining control of the Detroit River region. Secondly, uh, before the Lake Erie battle begun, the guns uh, previously protecting Fort Malden now became assigned to HMS Detroit, but in the midst of the entire British fleet surrendering, this defeat meant that um, not only had the ships surrendered, uh, the the lead flagship having surrendered, but those guns on HMS Detroit that had once previously been at Fort Malden um, meant that the that there would no longer be um, extra means of uh, defensive uh, provisions at Fort Malden, 
those um, defensive provisions were now in the hands of the enemy, being that of the Americans. Thirdly, how about the number of uh, British troops previously at Fort Malden before breakout of war was now greatly reduced, given a majority of soldiers from the 41st foot of regiment, or the 41st foot of regiment, went south into uh, the Michigan Territory uh, to have fought, say, like at uh, Fort Detroit and at the uh, River Raisin and what we know is uh, present-day Monroe, Michigan. They would have also been going into uh, northern Ohio, uh, where battles were being fought, most notably at uh, Fort Meigs and uh, Fort Stevenson. So when you see, when you have a majority of your own men uh, leaving, yes, you may have men, you may have other men standing behind to protect um, your uh, boundaries or your border, but it's not the same number. And because it's not the same number, who's to say that those men um, whom um, who remained um, who remain back um, will be able to um, thoroughly defend their uh, country's uh, territory in a time of war. Uh, most men from the 41st Foot and Royal Newfoundland Regiment whom fought with Lieutenant Robert Barclay sadly now found themselves as prisoners of war heading for... Um, Chillicothe, Ohio, which at one time, folks, was Ohio's uh, state capital before uh, the capital as we know it today um, was that of is that of uh, Columbus. Uh, if for those of you who aren't sure where Chillicothe is located in Ohio, it is about fifty miles south of um, Columbus at best, but that was Ohio's capital in her uh, early years as an official in her early years after she had been uh, admitted into the Union in 1803. So yes, it's one thing to survive uh, the horrors of the war, or of the battle, I should say, but now if you're on the uh, British side, you're not going to be able to go home to your family. You are now a prisoner of war, and you'll be in Chillicothe, Ohio, until a prisoner exchange can happen where where, uh, what do you call it, an equivalent number of uh, men from one side based upon their rank could be matched up with the same uh, on the other side, just to give you an example of how prisoner exchanges took place back then. Why is the number 900 important? Because that's the total number of British soldiers remaining within greater Amherstburg to go up against thousands of American troops under General William Henry Harrison's command. 900 seems like a lot, but when you're going up against an opposition that has thousands, um, that is not to your uh, favor. However, it would be fair to say that uh, there have been certain times in history where one side did not, always, did not have the largest number of soldiers and the other side had thousands, the side with the smaller number did prevail, but that history has also shown that that it has not always been on that it has not always turned out that way. But we, you know, can say that there have been some instances where, you know, luck did where good karma, I should say, prevailed for those with uh, smaller numbers. But I think we're going to find here that 
that even with the uh, the number of nine the number nine hundred being that of uh, the total number of British soldiers remaining within Greater Amherstburg, we might be forced to come to a realization that with that large of a number, that it's probably not going to be enough to um, suppress what lies in store. So uh, for well, he was a colonel, but he's now at this point Major General, uh, Major General Henry Proctor, uh, the British officer. He went about delaying his departure from Fort Malden for two weeks after Perry's victory, but come September 24th, the opposite happened, where all public buildings in Amherstburg got destroyed per uh, Major General Proctor's orders as a means for not falling into enemy hands. Proctor, along with other British officers and their regiments, as well as the remaining Indian allies, retreated upward uh, via the Thames River Valley. Uh, Commodore Perry uh, requested that his subordinates uh, go about providing support for General Harrison's advance, which they did wholeheartedly, no questioning. This is where, you know, history has taught us here that these have been some of the few instances where joint forces have worked together to make a difference. And had it not been for joint forces working with one another here, I, I do wonder if the Ohio campaign would have been a whole different outcome. I think it's fair to say it would have been. But thank heavens that people were smart enough to put differences aside and work together for the common good um, given um, the challenges that our uh, young republic was facing, given that we are uh, fighting a second war for independence. But as I've said before, and I'd say it again, being that of an economical standpoint versus political. Uh, did a battle involving American forces under General um, William Henry Harrison's command and that of Maj Major General Henry Proctor, including Indian allies under Tecumseh's helm, take place around early October of 1813. Yes, uh, the, the battle that took place was known as the Battle of the Thames or Battle of Moravian Town, which, which occurred on October 5th in Upper Canada near Chatham in southwestern Ontario. So Chatham, folks, uh, that's not too far from uh, Windsor or um, Amherstburg, let alone. And there is a place in uh, England, there is a town known as uh, Chatham, England. Uh, there is a place uh, in Virginia, in uh, the south side region of Virginia, which uh, borders the Virginia-North Carolina line, known as uh, Chatham, Virginia. Not too terribly far from uh, places like uh, South Boston and uh, Danville, to say the least. I always am intrigued by, um, by uh, places... That um, that I know exists in England, but yet the um, but yet you hear about uh, towns in America who that um, are named after say villages in England. Uh, for example, like there's uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Well, there's Norfolk, England. Uh, we've got um, how do I say it? there's uh, Liverpool, England. I, I know there's a place in. Uh, upstate New York, uh, north of Syracuse, Liverpool, New York. So it's amazing uh, just how many places in America uh, where cities and towns are named after uh, places in England. Harrison's force, or I should say his numbers, stood around 3,760, 
which included 260 Indians and an undisclosed number of U.S. Navy forces in Lake Erie, whereas uh, Major General uh, Henry Proctor's numbers via regulars stood between 600 to 800, and for Tecumseh, his numbers were between 500 to 1,000. Although Major General Proctor intended to trap General Harrison per the banks along the Thames River, he failed to fortify his position. What do you mean by failing to fortify his position? Well, failure to fortify your position meant that no earthworks or fortifications, let alone, were uh, designed to offset enemy forces. How much energy or fighting was left amongst uh, Proctor's men soon to follow? Well, Major General Proctor's men, being 250 under his helm, fled the battlefield after firing just one shot. Folks, we're talking about the best, supposedly the best army in the world, and here they are only firing one shot and you fled? Well, it just goes to show you that even the mightiest empire in the world, folks, is not always perfect. The mightiest empire in the world does have its flaws with those uh, serving within the uh, king's army. And yes, the king's navy, but in this case, the king's army. Many of these men um, were simply exhausted and in some instances half-starved. In other words, they... How can you say it? They almost were forced against their own will to fight. But at the same time, you can't just say, oh, if you don't want to fight today, that's fine. You know, we do have, you know, we have to fight whether we like it or not. But I think it's fair to say that many of these men already knew what the outcome was, outcome was going to be. They knew that they probably did not have a chance of uh, seeing um, victory within their grasp. Tecumseh and his followers remained in place by carrying on the fight, but would soon come into deadly fire against Kentucky troops led by Colonel Johnson. Both sides endured losses. The biggest loss, however, was none other than Tecumseh, whom died during fighting. Americans proclaimed victory at the Battle of the Thames, resulting in reestablishing American control over the Northwest Territory, including re retaking Fort Detroit and the greater Detroit area. But Tecumseh's death presented a huge blow to the Indian alliance he established. Because remember, folks, this alliance sought to uh, return um, the Indians back to their old ways of living, to stop being... Um, or to stop becoming Americanized, or I should say Anglicized, to where um, they were falling into what we might think of in today's time as new money. Tecumseh wanted his people to go back to old ways, and that's what his alliance sought to do. But when Tecumseh died, the alliance he established completely collapsed following this battle's aftermath. Without Oliver Perry, including uh, the leadership from, sub from his subordinates below, it would be fair to say that the advanced preparations leading to Harrison's victory would never have been uh, considered uh, feasible or realistic. Joint operations, folks, save the day. You know, both sides have to rely upon one another for the better good, or for, I should say for the greater good. If they don't rely upon each other when it's necessary, then how can a victory, how can a, how can a mission be achieved? It can't.
So for Harrison and uh, Perry, they were um, they were men whom um, emerged at the um, at the proper moment, not only at the proper moment but at the right time, and without their leadership when it mattered most, the outcomes not only at Lake Erie but at um, at Chatham with the uh, Battle of um, Battle of the Thames or at Moravian Town, we would have been looking at a whole different story. Had the enemy uh, prevailed, who's to say that Ohio would have still um, would have um, still been in the uh, in the uh, hands of the Americans? So these uh, victories, folks, are now, as I mentioned from the previous podcast of episode, have now liberated the Michigan Territory and have also kept uh, the Indian uh, the Indiana Territory safe from any future. Um, enemy um, encroachments. Well, that wraps up our time um, for this uh, podcast uh, segment episode. When I'm on the air again next, uh, it will be our final um, podcast segment episode to a signal victory, the Lake Erie Campaign 1812-1813 by David Curtis Skaggs and Gerard T. Altuff. I will say that it's been a great ride to say the least, but as I've said before, I'd say it again. All, um, you know, all good things in life do have to come to an end, but that doesn't mean that other good things await in store in the not-so-far-distant future. Thank you for your time, as always, and I look forward to being back on the air with you guys next time uh, as we uh, will be officially wrapping up this uh, book topic series. Take care, and wherever you all may live, uh, stay safe.